listening to Cleaning the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. It's not always easy to come up with a title, and this one is uh, not unlike the last two episodes I did that were uh, parts one and two, and I am really hesitant uh, to use the word racism. I have been a part of a number of movements uh, throughout the years, probably going back to the mid-80s, coming up through much of the 90s, uh, racial reconciliation movements. I have never been convinced that making um, racial reconciliation uh, the object in and of itself does not seem to meet with a great deal of success. Uh, I truly believe that that, that racism is um, it's a sin problem like other sin problems, and therefore it is a matter of the heart. There are certainly things that we can do, especially uh, forming relationships with each other, uh, serving and not being served, uh, thinking more highly of others than we do ourselves. All of that uh, feeds into walls and barriers being broken down. Um, you know, the first reconciliation that has to take place with us, of course, is is with God. We have to be reconciled with God. But then, what happens after that? So that's why I'm I'm hesitant to use this word racism uh, because it doesn't really come up in the New Testament with Jesus, not specifically said. And I think that that is significant. But uh, racism is there. Uh, it, it comes up at different times, and it certainly enters in in the main body of text that I want to use. In, beginning in uh, the Gospel of John, Chapter 4, starting with verse 4, where it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, and it is on his, his journey on his way to Galilee, uh, taking this route uh, through Samaria, that he has this encounter with this Samaritan woman. Uh, at, a, at Jacob's well, that uh, she's come there to draw water, and Jesus is there, and they have this conversation. And worship comes up, and she's the one who brings it up. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, 
there's been a lot of history uh, between the Samaritans and the Jews. And I'm not going to go into all of that history uh, for, for our purposes. I, I think uh, this is a continuation on worship and trying to understand worship, especially outside of the, the context of a worship service and what, what actually defines worship. And I've talked about this in previous episodes and even given my own definition of worship. Uh, but there, this rift has, has existed for years. Um, Israel basically divided into two kingdoms, and this, this part of it uh, intermarried with pagans and, and brought idol worship in, and there's just no love lost between these two groups. And that will come up in this discussion as we look at the Samaritan woman and what's actually going on here, the, the, the much, much bigger picture uh, that God has for us to, to understand, uh, especially about our own relationship with Jesus as, as bride and what worship is supposed to look like in this relationship. How does God see it? How does God view us in the context of worship? And, and what does this encounter that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, um, how should we understand this in terms of worship? But first, I want to look at Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. If you've been listening uh, to uh, these episodes, uh, this podcast, you know that uh, Romans 12.1 has been brought up numerous times. But I, I want to talk about it maybe in just a, a different from a different point of view right now. Um, Romans 12, 1, 1, if you don't really understand what worship is, then, then it, it makes it um, especially hard to come to terms with what spiritual service of worship is. But, but think about this. It, it, it's, on one level, it's somewhat abstract. But really, on another, if we think about this in the context of worship and uh, worship uh, encompassing all of life and, and really um, kind of the, the standard that, that, that worship, what God considers to be worship, uh, there, there are two things that it should fulfill. Uh, and that's the, the two greatest commandments, uh, that all the other commandments can, can be boiled down to these two commandments. Love God with your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourselves. That's really what Romans 12.1 is saying. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, I believe, is 
an illustration of that for us. In fact, it even starts out uh, with, with the interpreter of the law saying, asking Jesus, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what, what does the law say? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And the other passage that I think, uh, that's a parable. And Jesus' encounter with uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, I believe, is, is kind of the counterpart to that because it is an actual event. It takes place in, in real time, place, history with Jesus, with the Samaritan woman uh, at this well, having this exchange. Uh, that those two, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and uh, this encounter Jesus has with the woman at the well, both of those illustrate Romans 12.1. It's just another way of, of saying, love God with your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Romans 12.1 is saying. Even though it seems abstract, that's what it's telling us. So these two encounters, both involving Samaritans, um, are illustrations for us for what first Jesus is talking about uh, when the Samaritan woman brings up worship. And Jesus counters with um, God what he, he desires is those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus, and I've said this before, is, is our model for what it looks like to be a living and holy sacrifice. Once Adam and Eve sinned, this fallen world that they are in and that all of us are likewise in, that Jesus, who his Father in heaven sent in order to take away our sin, to atone uh, for our sinful fallen selves, he was born without sin and therefore he is the, the model for us, the picture for us uh, of what it looks like to be a living and holy sacrifice. Uh, really, if Adam and Eve, before they sinned, that all of their, their thoughts, all of their actions, were those for being living and holy sacrifices. Uh, there was no compromise with them. Uh, everything... Uh, glorified God uh, was in, was offered up to him, their very beings. You remember God's stated purpose when he created Adam in Genesis 2.15 to dress and to keep the garden. And that's worship. They have no self-awareness. They don't know they're naked until they sin, and then they, they realize they're, they're naked. They're filled with shame. And they try to hide from God. Jesus comes. He's born without sin. Uh, he is 
a living and holy sacrifice. And the word sacrifice means both the, the act of offering up sacrifices uh, and being the, the, the victim of sacrifice. Jesus is both. He offers himself up his own life and he, he, his life is taken from him. He's crucified. Meaning that he is also, uh, with his own life, he becomes the victim of sacrifice. And since he knew no sin and he became sin on our behalf, he becomes uh, the, the first uh, sinless person in a sinful world. Uh, to present us with the perfect model for what it looks like to be a living and holy sacrifice. But what happens is, is we get saved and we lose sight of him. We, we forget about his life. We, we forget to compare and contrast everything that, that's written and said beyond the gospel of accounts of Jesus with what's written in there about him, what he said, what he did, who he said it to, where he said it to them, that, that, that Jesus is the picture of what worship is supposed to look like, what our own lives are supposed to look like. And this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well is, is so profound. Um, and, and it's not seen really as being all that profound, but, but it is profound. There's a lot of symbolism going on here. Um, and usually when I teach the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, uh, I also like to teach uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan and sort of tie those two together. But in this episode, I'm going to stick mainly to uh, the Samaritan woman, uh, this encounter that Jesus has with her, and follow it up in the next episode uh, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think this is enough of an introduction. Now, I just want to read some of this, some of what is written in the Gospel of John, beginning with uh, verse 3. So, he, meaning Jesus, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Uh, Jesus' disciples had gone into town to buy food, so he was all by himself. And in, in verse 9, uh, the Samaritan woman responds to him. She says, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Uh, 
Jews did not have anything to do with Samaritans, which was talked about at the beginning uh, of this episode, and uh, where kind of these uh, racist attitudes uh, come in or presented uh, in this passage. It doesn't say that specifically, but uh, there are racist tendencies, uh, attitudes. Um, the Jews so despised the Samaritans, they didn't even want to look at them. They didn't want to see them. And since there was another way that they could travel, at least one other way, apparently, um, to reach Galilee uh, from Jerusalem, they would choose to take that route, even though it was longer, just because they didn't want to go uh, through Samaria. They didn't want to encounter any Samaritans. And that's why the Samaritan woman is so surprised that Jesus, being a Jew, and Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans, uh, that he would ask her uh, to, to give him a drink. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, though, uh, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become to them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. After the two days, Jesus left for Galilee. Now I want to go back, uh, start from the beginning, and uh, just slowly go through uh, the Samaritan woman to, to review uh, what I've just read, or to, to make comments, commentary on what I just read and, and why uh, this is so significant, especially in the context of worship. And uh, what it's saying is, is so radical so incredibly radical uh, what Jesus is saying about worship here. But uh, we, we tell, because we define worship by a worship service, um, we have brought this encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well and, and its message about the true worshipers worshiping in spirit and in truth, we have brought it into the worship service. And that's where we these words are spoken. Uh, we talk about what we're doing there in a worship service. That, all right, get ready. Let's worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, and it just completely sucks the life and spirit out of this passage, out of this encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And we have, especially uh, what has occurred is in uh, almost all cultures, I, I think, uh, majority cultures treat minority cultures exactly the same way that the Jews regarded and treated the Samaritans because we believe 
we have fulfilled what God desires from us as worship in a worship service. We have deceived ourselves through false reasoning to believe that when we come together like that, that that's what Jesus was talking about here, and that's what our worship is uh, in these settings. And nothing could be further from the truth. The sin problem of racism is tied directly to worship. Just think about worship. And what I have said in the previous uh, two episodes that were uh, coming uh, from James 127, talking about pure and undefiled worship, and looking at worship as this big picture, all-encompassing, uh, all of life, and that church fits into the bigger picture of worship and a worship service is uh, in the context of, of church and the smaller picture of church and the even smaller picture of a worship service and everything outside of that is the bigger picture of worship now back to the first part of this text john 4 chapter 4 verse 3 it says so Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. Think about that. He had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? When other Jewish leaders uh, avoided going to Samaria, went around that place, did not want to encounter that place or any Samaritans, because Jesus' mission was 100% to fulfill his Father's will, not his own. And the only time he questions this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knows what lies ahead, uh, how he's going to die. And he asks for just a, a, a momentary lapse. He is tempted by fear and then he says but not my will my father's will so so because this is his father's will we have to see this in the context of for why god sent jesus in the first place and that goes all the way back to adam and eve that goes all the way back to their sin uh, the fall they're being removed from the garden and their condition becoming that uh, of spiritual widowhood and fatherlessness, but with a promise to send uh, Messiah, Savior, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, but also husband and bridegroom, and that that's Jesus. And we, if if you have accepted Jesus's proposal of marriage, then you believe. Uh, that he came to deliver, redeem, and restore us, which means he takes away our condition of spiritual widowhood and fatherlessness, and that in our relationship to him, once we accept his proposal of marriage, the gospel, we are considered by God the Father to already be married to him, 
And through Jesus, through our marriage relationship to him, uh, we are adopted into our Heavenly Father's family. So think about that as the big picture here, uh, that this just isn't a trip. Jesus isn't just going from point A and to point B and has this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. This is taking that all into account. You really have to, to do that to, to understand how profound this encounter is. Uh, but, but you also have to be able uh, to see this as um, something uh, forward or foreshadowing um, what will ultimately end up happening after Jesus has been resurrected and ascends into heaven that God the, the, the wall of separation between uh, Jews and Gentiles uh, Jewish flesh and Gentile flesh uh, the Jewish people are the first nation of people that God chose under the first covenant, under the law, to reveal his glory to all the nations. And uh, this, this dividing wall being removed, and, and Paul talks about this in Ephesians, uh, what I call Christianity 101 for Gentile converts. Uh, he talks about this, this wall being removed that... Um, God no longer will consider just Jews. Um, he will also include Gentiles. There, there's going to be no separation of flesh. He's just going to view all of mankind as one flesh. And those um, that he draws, uh, that he brings to his son Jesus... Those are his chosen, those he draws, and, and those who accept uh, Jesus' proposal of marriage. Those then become God's chosen people. And I know that's going to be difficult for, for many of you to kind of take that in and, and process, but, but Scripture bears that out. But I'm not going to go into that. I've address that in, in some earlier episodes, but I just want to frame this, this encounter that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman who is uh, identified with uh, a culture that Jews don't have anything to do with. Right away, we find out uh, I mean, we're, we're given uh, insight into the, the bigger picture here uh, of why Jesus has had to go to Samaria, what, what God's purpose is for this, his, his larger purpose, his will. Uh, when it says that he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The first thing I, I briefly want to touch on is the fact that it's noon, 12 o'clock. And that is the sixth hour of the day. Uh, but it is the second prayer hour of the day in the Jewish prayer system uh, that every day uh, was broken into uh, three distinct parts for prayer. The first prayer hour happens at, at 9 o'clock in the morning, the second at 12 o'clock in uh, or noon, and then the third one is at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and again, I've, I've touched on this in a previous episode, but um, Jesus on the day that he was crucified and died, everything that happened, he was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning the, during the first prayer hour. Uh, at, at noon, everything uh, turns dark. That's the second prayer hour, and then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, or the ninth hour of the day, that is the third prayer hour, and it was at that time that Jesus uh, gave up the Spirit. But when I said this is sort of looking forward, it is foreshadowing. Uh, remember, it was uh, at the same time at noon, the, the second prayer hour of the day, that that Peter had... Uh, gone up on the rooftop to pray, and that's when uh, he had the vision of the the sheet unfolding and God saying everything was clean. And what he was saying was that that there now uh, no one is to be considered unclean. And um, Cornelius, uh, a Gentile, had uh, been visited by. Uh, an angel, uh, this is all in Acts chapter 10, uh, telling him to to send for Peter. Uh, so God has prepared Peter through this vision uh, to be able to go when the messengers come for him uh, to visit with Cornelius because prior to that, uh, it was not lawful for Jews to enter into the home of a Gentile. They were considered to be unclean. So this is not just a, a random time that's mentioned here. I mean, the fact that that scripture, that John records the time that Jesus arrives at this well, uh, saying that it is at noon, uh, is, is not a coincidence. Um, in fact, I, I believe... Um, these prayer hours that we should uh, not in a legalistic way but i think that there is significance for still observing and practicing them today and there is a enough uh, recorded with jesus's own life as well as in acts um, events significant events that occur that perfectly correspond with these three designated prayer hours of the day. And, and remember uh, what I said in, in an earlier episode that uh, when, when the Jews talked about worship or when it's recorded uh, in Scripture talking about worship, uh, 
in in most of those instances, especially um, talking about the the word proskuneo, um, complete submission to God, uh, it's talking about prayer. Uh, Jesus himself said, my father's house is a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves and robbers. Uh, we don't even consider our churches today to be houses of prayer. We have, we've now called them houses of worship. The second thing I want to call attention to is that this is not just some random well, you know, out in the desert someplace. This this well had belonged to Jacob, who uh, had given it to his son Joseph. So what? I hope this makes sense. I mean, it shouldn't make sense. What? this signifies uh, what is taking place around this well and the significance this well is to the Samaritan woman as well as all the people in the region uh, who are still benefiting from it. Uh, they're, they're drawing um, life. You can't live without water. Um, I mean, this, this is a life-giving well, but it also represents the first covenant, the covenant under the law um, that did not cleanse from the inside out. It was all this kind of external cleansing. And it was um, temporary satisfying of thirst, not not and of course I'm speaking of, of spiritual thirst uh, here because I'm trying to, to frame this in, in, in a much larger context. And if you uh, remember when I did the series on proving that Jesus came to redeem a bride, episode three in the series, the word woman and, and tying that with Jesus and tying that specifically to Mary, uh, that she uh, symbolized um, this in her many roles as, as woman, Jesus calling her woman, uh, which means uh, a virgin bride, uh, a wife, uh, a widow, um, but the, the first time, and he only addresses her this way uh, in two instances, uh, the, the wedding at Cana, and then when he's on the cross and he makes provision for her by entrusting her uh, into the hands of John. And, it's, and these two uh, events are only recorded uh, in the Gospel of John, which this encounter Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well is only recorded in the Gospel of John. Um, and Jesus also, in one time, in one verse, and it's in verse 21, Jesus addresses her as woman. We never know what her real name is, but Jesus says, woman, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Looking forward, after he has been resurrected, after the dividing wall has come down, 
after uh, it's revealed to Peter that there is no longer separation, a separation between Jewish and Gentile flesh. He, and he calls her a woman. She is figuratively, symbolically like Mary, but, but not as profound as Mary. Um, symbolizes the bride that Jesus came to redeem. Um, that's, we can see her in that light when we back up and look at this, this much bigger picture. So if going back to, to Mary and the, the wedding feast, uh, um, in, in Cana, remember they ran out of wine and, um, Jesus turns the water into wine, not just any wine, but really fine wine, the best wine. But but Mary tells the the servants of of the the wedding master who is in charge of this celebration tells those servants to to take these these tall uh, big uh, jars that are empty. They held water for ceremonial cleansing. Uh, those vessels represent uh, really Israel in that point in time, symbolized. Uh, and they're empty. And Jesus has come to, to, to fill us up from the inside out, to, to cleanse us completely from the inside out. Uh, and these, these stone jars uh, symbolize that. And, and when he fills them up with the very best wine. And we know that, that when we accept Jesus' proposal of marriage, uh, he does not leave us comfortless, uh, orphaned, uh, desolate, bereft. He sends the Holy Spirit, uh, the comforter. So we have this the same kind of picture going on here with the Samaritan woman, but... You know, this is um, so profound because she is a Samaritan, and the Jews hated Samaritans. They would not anymore go out of their way for a Samaritan. The Samaritans were, were so despised by the Jews, in fact, that they despised them even more than Gentiles, and Gentiles were considered to be unclean. Uh, by the Jews, and all Samaritan women were considered to be unclean, which explains why his disciples were so surprised uh, when they returned uh, to find him speaking with her. When Jesus sits down at the well and the Samaritan woman comes to draw water, Jesus says, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, uh, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Again, referring back to uh, the wedding feast uh, celebration at Cana uh, after uh, the servants fill the 
water jars uh, with water. And Jesus turns uh, this water into the very best wine. Uh, Jesus then tells the servants to, to draw some out and take it to the uh, master of the banquet. And of course, the, the master of the banquet tastes it and is in disbelief that they saved the, the bridegroom, saved the best wine for last. And um, the Greek word uh, for draw out uh, means like um, to, to pump out or bale uh, a ship's bilge water. And this Greek word is only used four times in the New Testament, and all four are in the Gospel of John, uh, with two being in this account of the uh, wedding celebration at Cana, and the other two times are in this account of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And that's it's not a coincidence. Both of these recorded uh, events really, again, speak to the condition of Israel and the old covenant that can only cleanse us or could cleanse from the outside or on the outside only. And Jesus comes to cleanse us uh, from the, the inside out. And there's, again, in the Gospel of of John in chapter 12 verse 32 Jesus said and I if I be lifted up from earth will draw all men unto me now this is a different Greek word from the one that uh, was just discussed that, that's translated as to draw um, in those two accounts uh, but the Greek word um, that's used here with Jesus saying, I will be lifted up, it, it means to, to draw, to drag off, to draw by inward power, to lead, impel. Now that's an amazing contrast. I mean, even this word uh, to draw has significance uh, for what is going on here, This, the bigger picture of what is going on here. This isn't just an encounter with, with the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, this is an encounter with, with a woman who the Jews hated, uh, her culture, her people. And here he is, he, he's presenting the condition of Israel, uh, and she herself, who he calls woman, she symbolizes uh, the bride that Jesus came to redeem. Uh, she is that kind of, of figure symbolically in this account. And remember when, when Jesus tells her that he knows that she's already been married five times and the man that she is living with is not even her husband. She doesn't deny this. She doesn't try and, and hide this. And you, you realize he's not judging her. He's not condemning her. 
He's just telling her that he knows all about her and what that's communicating to her because he is part of the, the majority culture and she is part of the minority culture that's discriminated against, avoided, even hated, thought to be less than human. Wow, he's talking to me. Uh, he cares about me. He's not condemning me. And he's telling me about living water that can be mine. The fact that she has been married so many times before and is uh, living with a, a sixth man who isn't her husband, it also uh, speaks to this much bigger picture of what Jesus came to do and what the condition of Israel was at that time. Israel had strayed so many times from God and, and gone into exile and been divorced by God. And at the time that Jesus is there, none of the leaders recognize him. They don't believe he is the promised Messiah. Uh, so how could the God that they believe that they are worshiping is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not. They are living, they themselves, Israel itself, the religious leaders themselves, are living in an adulterous, unfaithful relationship with the world. Not God. If we jump ahead to uh, John chapter 8, uh, this, this is borne out. Um, starting with verse 2, At dawn Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bit down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman who was still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Here is a third instance where Jesus uses the word woman to describe uh, this woman. Uh, he doesn't know her name. Uh, he knows that she has been caught in adultery and condemned by the religious leaders. She, again, she not only represents Israel and Israel's condition for being uh, in an unfaithful, adulterous relationship with the world, uh, this is signified by her calling uh, her woman, uh, but she also represents the bride that, she, that he came to redeem. And 
the, the real sin, what Jesus is really confronting the religious leaders uh, with, and, and they don't even realize it. I mean, they, they obviously can't say that they're without sin and they're not going to, to stone her. There's some conviction that, that takes place. But what he's really saying, that the greater crime here with God is that Israel, and they represent the religious authority in Israel, these folks who have brought her in and condemned her, their sin uh, corporately as a religious body in authority, they are in an adulterous relationship with the world. Uh, their husband is not God. They believe he is, but he isn't. He has, he's left the house. He's left the building. So what's, what's worse? Uh, physical, uh, adultery, uh, or being in an adulterous, idolatrous relationship, uh, with the world, um, cheating on God, being unfaithful to God. That's what's going on here. And this is perfectly consistent with what John starts out with, with, with Mary being called woman at the, uh, the wedding celebration at Cana, and then again with the Samaritan woman, um, and then with this woman who is caught in adultery. We, we, if we don't back up and look at the bigger picture of what Jesus came to do, uh, that he came to redeem a bride, he came to, to deliver, redeem, and restore us, to take away our condition of spiritual widowhood, and that when we accept his proposal of marriage, we are betrothed to him. We are already considered to be married to him in God's eyes, and we are looking towards the, the wedding of the Lamb, that celebration where we will be married to Him, we will be fully restored, and we will be with Him forever. Let's talk about worship. After Jesus um, reveals that He knows all about her, and she recognizes uh, that He's a prophet based on this, and she says she brings worship into the conversation. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and the worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Why is this so significant? Well, think about what she says, you know, kind of starting off. Uh, you... Uh, Jews believe that uh, if you really want to worship God, you have to come to Jerusalem. Even though we, we've been worshiping the, in these mountains, um, 
you know, it's, it's kind of like today. If you want to contextualize this, how many times have you said or have you heard someone else say, if you really want to worship God, you need to come to uh, my church. Uh, where I go to church. I mean, we have the best worship going on. We've got the best music, uh, the, the best musicians, uh, the best teaching and, and preaching, uh, or you need to come to, to this worship event. Um, we do it all the time. And we keep trying to get better and better at it so that more and more people will be drawn to our uh, worship times, our worship services, but Jesus is the one who draws us, and he does that outside of a worship service. He's calling us to come outside of that, to come outside the camp, to bear his reproach. Listen again to what he's saying. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then he said, that was in verse 21 and skipping down to verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. Listen to what he's saying. The time is coming and has now come. Why is it coming and has now come? It's because Jesus is there. Not only on earth, but physically there in that moment and in time with this Samaritan woman having a conversation at the well. Jesus is saying, this is a picture of what it looks like to worship God in spirit and in truth. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in these mountains. It's not about a worship service. It is the service of worship, worshiping through serving. I'm not saying that we, we're not worshiping God when we come together, but that's not God's passion, what he desires from us as the true worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, we have to have his spirit. We have to have the Holy Spirit. We have to accept Jesus' proposal of marriage and and to be sealed in the Holy Spirit in order to worship God in the Spirit. Otherwise, we're just spinning our wheels. We're just trying to, to please God, to measure up to Him and hope that He will not turn us away when we die. You know, nothing we do if we don't have His Spirit in us matters. It can't do a thing for us. If it could, then Adam and Eve would have been able to, to fix things with God so they could go back into the garden, into paradise, into a sinless setting world. But they couldn't, and neither can we. 
in terms of truth, you know, we have to understand the truth about worship, what true worship is. True worship is loving God with our hearts, minds, and souls, and our neighbors as ourselves equally. It is being a living and holy sacrifice, which is our spiritual service of worship. And that takes place all day, every day, throughout our lives. Uh, We are to give thanks uh, to God in all things in Christ Jesus' name, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when it comes to, to worship that is pure and undefiled, that's what James one twenty seven is addressing. It says that pure and undefiled worship is visiting the widows and the fatherless in their distress because that's what Jesus came to do, was to take our condition of spiritual widowhood and fatherlessness away by offering up his life and defeating death uh, and ascending into heaven and giving us citizenship in heaven where we are already seated with him in a heavenly realm. In verse 23, when it says, when he says a time is coming and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. This this word worshipers for the true worshipers, this is the only time uh, that this Greek word translated as the word uh, worshipers is used in the entire New Testament. Jesus is talking about something so radically um, new, and yet it's not new. This is the way that it was supposed to be. Uh, The care and protection of the widows and the fatherless uh, as worship uh, was is what the law was for to begin with. It's what justice and mercy and compassion really boils down to. And so we cannot be the true worshipers that God desires us to be when we leave pure and undefiled worship out of it. According to James one twenty seven. The, the last part of that, uh, visiting the widows and the fatherless in their distress, this is pure and undefiled worship to God in order to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, in order to keep from living in an adulterous, idolatrous relationship with the world. If we do not fulfill this and this kind of worship that God desires from us in in spirit and in truth, then it calls into question every time we come together for a worship service. And what we do in that, it calls into question whether it is even for God. We may think it is. But God does not receive it. It is not credible because we have not worshipped him in spirit and in truth outside of that. And 
And in this illustration, in this example, in this event with this woman at the well, Jesus, being a Jew, being uh, the majority culture here, is at this well with this woman who is part of a minority culture who is hated and despised by the Jews. I think you get what I'm saying here. And I'm saying it because I am a white man living in America, raised in, born and raised in the South, South Georgia. You know, I grew up with opportunities and you know I hate to use the word privilege because there's a lot of folks who bristle at that a lot of white folks bristle at the idea of the existence of white privilege but we've got to be honest about this if if we want to worship God in spirit and in truth then this is so critical for us to understand the significance of Jesus being there with this woman at the well and talking about that we are to, a time is coming that the worshipers that God desires are those, the true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And it means God coming down in the flesh as Jesus came to serve and not be served. He, he was the majority culture above all cultures. Uh, and he came, and it says he had to go. Each one of us has to go where it is that our culture hates and despises. And any actions that we take, any choices that we make, whether they're, they're political or their lifestyles or their uh, professional opportunities or they are tied uh, to, to church and faith that leaves out those such as this Samaritan woman that Jesus had an encounter with at the well. We cannot possibly claim to be the true worshipers who, who worship God, the God of all creation, in spirit and in truth. We can't. We can't make that claim. If we don't think more highly of others than, than we do ourselves, which scripture tells us that, that we have to do this. If, if we are not here to, to serve and not be served, if we live in places that, that isolate us, segregate us from those who are not like us, if we avoid, whether it's intentional or not intentional, those places where, where people are trapped and living, and we have, in effect, by being uh, privileged or majority culture, we have contributed to that, to keeping people out or keeping them in their place or putting them in places where we don't have to go. We can avoid them if we want to. And then we claim, hey, we have the best worship ever going on here in our churches. Man, we sing the best songs. We have, have the, the, the 
most rocking music, most contemporary Christian music. We have the best musicians in town. We've got the best preaching in town. Yeah, but how are you worshiping God outside of that setting? Because that's where worship in spirit and in truth takes place. And think about what the outcome is. Uh, Jesus' encounter with, with this Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, she recognizes him. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And then the woman, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Remember, she had come to the well. She brought uh, an empty vessel, an empty jar, uh, to fill it up with water in order to... Know, take it back, I assume, for her and the man she was living with to drink, uh, to to clean themselves. I don't know how big it was. Um, or maybe it was just for ceremonial cleansing. Uh, but, but whatever it was for, whatever her purpose that day in coming there and filling up this, this jar with water that... Uh, from this well that, that represents this the, the first covenant, the old covenant, the covenant under the law. She's so excited about her encounter with Jesus and, and believing that uh, he could be the one, he could be the Messiah. Uh, based on him knowing all of this about her and not condemning her, she came with an empty vessel, but she herself was an empty vessel. And, I mean, in a very real sense, uh, on, on a symbolic level at least, she left her old self behind. She has this living water. She becomes an evangelist. She becomes a, a, a precursor of the evangelist uh, bringing, spreading the good news of the gospel that Jesus has risen from the dead. Um, it's powerful. And she, she comes and she tells the townspeople that she met a man and she believes he might be the Messiah. He knew everything about her. These people knew her. They probably knew her family for generations. Uh, they knew her history. They probably knew maybe what was behind some of her uh, being able to stay married to the uh, to one man, to being married so many times, and now she was living with this guy. And she comes before them, and they know who she is, and she's excited. She they pick up on the fact that this person she's talking about has obviously not condemned her. He has given her hope. He has treated her with respect. And he's a Jew. 
I mean, how profound is this if you think about what the reception would probably have been like if Jesus had not had this encounter uh, with this Samaritan woman at the well. She proclaims his coming before he even arrives, just as John the Baptist proclaimed Christ's coming, just as Mary Magdalene in, in the garden when Jesus uh, was resurrected and the disciples fled. They were afraid and she stayed behind and she sees this man and she thinks that, that he is a gardener and then he reveals himself to her and she goes and, and tells the rest of the disciples who are kind of hiding um, that Jesus has risen. She becomes just like the Samaritan woman, only now she has the actual factual good news of the gospel that Jesus has risen from the dead. Verse 40, this is the reaction of those Samaritans in, in the town, uh, that, that she came proclaiming the good news of, of Jesus coming to them. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And after the two days, Jesus left for Galilee. That is so profound. These Samaritans who were despised by the Jews, and this Jew who is Jesus, who is Messiah, he is husband and bridegroom, he has come to lay down his life for all of them as well as the Jews and all of us today. And they believe in him. But, you know, the same happens for us. We, we hear other people telling us about uh, Jesus, uh, who he is, and our need to, to accept him, to receive him. And then when we do and we meet him personally, we have a, a personal relationship with him, a, a personal experience with him, it becomes real. And that's what, what these, uh, the folks in, in Samaria, uh, these Samaritans are saying to this Samaritan woman, we heard your testimony and we believe, we were convinced. But then when we encountered Jesus Personally, we really knew without a doubt that he is the Messiah. And yet the Jews, the Jewish leadership has completely rejected him. They are living in this adulterous relationship with the world and they refuse to recognize it and to repent. And here's 
this Samaritan woman, been married five times, living with a man, and she sees Jesus so clearly. I have a, a, a close friend uh, named Alfred Johnson. He's a pastor of a church in Chattanooga uh, called Church of the Firstborn. Uh, Alfred and I are about the same age. He was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1955. And I was born in Gainesville, Georgia in 1956. And even though we were both born and grew up in the South uh, at the same time or during the, the same period, uh, just one year apart, our experiences were so different, uh, extremely different, light years apart. Alfred is African-American, and as I have shared, I, I'm white. And Alfred uh, experienced um, what it's like in some pretty horrific ways at times, uh, what it's like to, to be a minority, uh, especially an African-American minority, growing up in a uh, majority white culture in the South. And even though there was all kinds of civil rights legislation passed in the late 60s, uh, people's hearts have not been changed. They've just taken different forms of segregation and, and um, racist attitudes. And Alfred would be the first to say that racism runs both ways, but a minority culture is really powerless to do anything about it. The effect really do come through uh, the majority culture. In my relationship with Alfred, uh, ministering together at times, he has a tremendous heart for the widows and the fatherless, and through his church, uh, he helps both. And in the summer, the widows ministry I'm with hosts short-term mission trips uh, with youth, and during the week, they will do construction jobs on widows' homes. They'll pray with our widows in our widows' prayer ministry. And I will take them to the Church of the Firstborn, where Alfred Johnson does a, a race and faith talk with them, just sharing his life, what it was like growing up, uh, being born in the 50s as an African-American in the South, and how... Uh, that he, he grew up really despising white people and rejecting re the white man's God, Jesus, and then actually uh, being uh, led to the Lord by some white college students. And uh, now being able to, to openly share and to try and, and get conversations going uh, about this with these youth, because most of the youth that, that come here to serve with us are, are white, middle-class, suburban kids. And there's a lot of perception that, that, that racism and discrimination doesn't exist anymore, that we made it through civil rights, that, that we've changed laws, but the problem is, is we, we haven't, hearts haven't been changed and, and perspectives haven't been changed, and we've come to think that as believers, especially majority culture believers, that, you know, we can, we've convinced ourselves that, that so many of, of our actions and our lifestyles really are not causing anyone 
any harm or based on segregation. Uh, you know, the places we live, uh, the places we go to church, the, the, the choices that we make when we drive from point A to point B generally don't include driving down into the neighborhoods and communities of those uh, poor uh, minority culture areas in our cities. And, and Alfred always shares uh, with uh, the youth that, that come in that uh, people in minority cultures, and, and of course he's specifically, since he's African American, he's speaking what he knows best about African American culture, that when majority culture comes in to minister, to help, to serve, it is not lost. Uh, that it is realized that majority culture doesn't have to be there if they don't want to be. It's a choice. And how powerful that potentially is and in, in not only being able to, to, to not just tell people about the love of God, but to show them the love of God, to, to show them that you think as highly of them as you do yourself to serve and not be served. And I hope you understand where I'm coming from in this and where I'm going. I, I'm trying to contextualize this uh, for today and right now. Uh, not just in my own country and America and what's what's happening, but but also what's going on in the rest of the world and the way that we are perceived. We, the church, Christ's bride, the bearer of light and truth. Jesus, having to go to Samaria on his way to Galilee, God's bigger per picture here. Uh, for what Jesus came to do and who this Samaritan woman symbolizes, as well as this setting uh, at, at Jacob's well, uh, the, the first covenant, the covenant under the law. Uh, and it is a, a covenant that has actually um, rejected her uh, as a Samaritan, as well as all of those outside of of the Jewish uh, faith as well as uh, ethnicity. But Jesus has come to redeem a bride. God has taken the dividing wall down to separate Jew from Gentile, Jew from Samaritan, that now there's a level playing field and all are welcome to be a part of God's family, to be adopted into his family as sons and daughters and co-heirs with Jesus. And to be able to do this, we have to accept Jesus and what he has done for us, that he has paid the bride price. Uh, a new marriage contract has been written up, and it is a covenant of grace. And we are no longer looking at the law, the first covenant. We are looking at the Beatitudes, the second covenant of grace. 
And look what happens when, when Jesus, a Jew, uh, who, who the Jews are known to hate the Samaritans, he comes and he presents an opportunity for her to have living water, eternal life. Look what she does. Look how she responds. And look how those that she goes ahead of Jesus and his disciples and tells about him and his coming, being on his way there. Look at the outcome. Can you imagine today if we understood what Jesus meant when he said a time is coming? In fact, it is here right now because I am standing right here right now with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And this is what it looks like to worship in spirit and in truth. This is what God desires his true worshipers to look like. And it doesn't happen in a worship service. It doesn't happen on Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday evening or at a worship conference. It all happens outside of that. What God really wants to do when we come together like that for what we call a worship service is He wants to meet with us. He wants to renew us. He wants to restore us. He wants to encourage us and affirm us and to renew us so that we can go back out on the battlefield and worship Him in spirit and in truth everywhere we are and at all times and in all places. So, if you believe this, if you believe this to be true, then we, like Jesus, who was there only to fulfill his Father's will, we have to go to Samaria as well. It's not a choice. And even though, uh, as a majority culture, going to uh, minority neighborhoods, uh, poor uh, oppressed uh, communities. Uh, it it may come across by those uh, minority cultures that uh, we have made a choice to be there, but we really don't have a choice. We have to go to Samaria just like Jesus had to go to Samaria. This is not a choice. We have got to stop putting property value above human value and worth, especially for those who are citizens in heaven just like us, who are already seated in a heavenly realm just like us. Back in the 60s when I was growing up, before civil rights, when there were separate drinking fountains and bathrooms uh, and having to sit at the back of the bus and coming in the back doors of, of restaurants and, and uh, sitting in, in places that, that were for uh, black people only. Don't you realize that was no different than the Jews considering 
the Gentiles uh, to be unclean, uh, the, the Samaritans to be uh, less than human. One time uh, Jesus was even called the Samaritan and, and, and the Samaritans were considered to be subhuman uh, like dogs. And Samaritan women, they were all unclean. All of this stuff that happened back in the 60s and still in many ways is still happening today. What it communicates, what it says is that minority cultures are unclean that we need to be separated, that, that we don't have to, to embrace and love and serve them and not be served by them, that we have to think as highly, if not more highly of them, than we do ourselves. That's what this encounter that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well uh, is telling us. You know, a time is coming, it's already here. Yes, he's talking about when he's going to die, defeat death, and be resurrected from the dead. But he is also giving us a picture of what it looks like to worship God in spirit and in truth. The, the worshipers that God desires. That this Samaritan woman, remember when uh, he tells her that she has been married five times and that she's living with a man that is not her husband and she owns up to this and he commends her for speaking the truth. This is a picture of truth. This She is who Jesus came for, the bride that he came for, the church that he came to deliver, redeem, and to ultimately restore. The next time you're in church, just look around, not to see who's there, but to see who isn't there. And then look around your neighborhoods and see who's there, but also see who's not there. And then look at the places that you work and see who's there and see who's not there. And then go find those who are not there where they are, what their lives are like, what their struggles are like, and bear Christ's reproach right alongside of them. Amen. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question, is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? Until next time.